a short yet most terrifying question. And that is the question, are we there yet? It's a short question that every parent dreads hearing from the back seat of any long car journey or ride. And as we all know, it's not an honest inquiry about geography or MapQuest or uh, where we're heading. It's loaded with hidden meaning and complaint. It may really mean something like, I'm hungry, or I am thirsty, or I am tired, or I'm bored, or I need the bathroom, or my brother hit me, or I feel sick, or any other number of things. And you know that you, as the driver, are expected to meet this need and deal with this struggle in a patient and loving way, which we often aren't able to do. Well, as adults, we don't typically ask that question anymore, do we? At least not out loud. And yet I think we still share the spirit of that question in many things as we journey through life. For all of us experiencing COVID right now, both the health implications and responses and guidelines to the virus, in our souls, I'm sure we all carry the question, are we there yet? But it may not be COVID alone. We don't need that sort of thing to prompt that question. It may be difficult family relationships or things going on at work. It may be struggles with maintaining a decent job or holding one down though you try your hardest. It may be an ongoing struggle with sin and guilt and not seeming to be able to make gains as you want to. And although we don't articulate, are we there yet? I think all of us are somewhere on a spectrum in how we handle struggles and complaints. On one end, perhaps we complain very easily and very regularly and often to any and all who would listen and even those who don't. And with the presence of social media, there is always now an outlet to share our complaints with the wider world and invariably someone will join us and join in and support our complaint. That's at one end of the spectrum and perhaps at the other end are those who just don't know how to complain or, or really question whether it's right to complain at all. Now obviously it's hard to speak for any culture and attitudes vary across the globe, across the country and of course person to person. But I think generally New Englanders typically have a very similar attitude to complaining as in my native Britain. And the summary is well summarized by another native Brit, a pastor and theologian, J.I. Packer, who passed away to be with the Lord just last month. J.I. Packer wrote this once. He said, Northern European-influenced culture has historically embraced the stiff upper lip ideal of human behavior and habitually looks down on people who voice personal complaints in public as morally inferior weaklings. And we may not use those words, but I certainly resonate with some of that stiff upper lip ideal. But regardless, wherever you lie on that spectrum, maybe on either end or somewhere in between, or sometimes you fluctuate one end to the other, 
regardless, if we don't understand how God wants us to handle our complaints and our struggles before him, then we will invariably be doing it wrong. And this morning, we're going to look to the Psalms to help us, to guide us, and to teach us on handling complaints, not from our culture's perspective, but from God's. And for those of you who've been following us through our summer series, you know that um, we're going to be working through eight different types of Psalms. There are more than eight, um, but we're covering eight this summer. The most common three, as we find through the book of Psalms, there are songs of thanksgiving, which Pastor Paul started our series with from Psalm 116. There are then hymns of joy or praise that Pastor Jeff will be preaching from in a couple of weeks. And then there are songs of lament, which we're going to consider today. And actually, the Psalms of lament are the most common of all the Psalms that we find in the Scripture. And we can sort of imagine this cycle of using these Psalms together, the songs of uh, thanksgiving being a singing of life restored to God, hymns of praise, singing in life in harmony with God, and then songs of lament bringing to God our struggles. And then the cycle can continue. Now, given the number of the, the Psalms that are regarding lament, God clearly wants us to know that we can and we should bring our struggles to him, and he wants us to know how to do so. J.I. Packer went on to say about the Christian life, he said, complaints are integral to this new regenerate life of communion and prayer. So complaint will be, or at least should be, a reoccurring element in the praying of the born again. So we're going to look at Psalm 25 this morning as a good lesson for us all to learn how to bring our struggles to God. And by God's grace, I trust that we're going to learn that God intends for us to pour out our soul and our struggles to him because of his steadfast love and goodness to us in Christ Jesus. So we're going to see that God intends for us to pour out our soul and our struggles to him because of his steadfast love and goodness to us. In Christ Jesus. So if you have a Bible with you, um, certainly turn to, uh, to Psalm 25. I know it's printed in the bulletins. You can read it there as well. And if you're online, then the, I think the, the words will be projected on the screens. You can read it along at home as well. So let me read Psalm 25. A Psalm of David says this. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember, your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. 
all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the earth. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh God, my soul, and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Psalm 25 for us this morning. And as you may have seen there or noticed as we were reading, this psalm does not cover one single struggle. In fact, it covers several struggles kind of entwined threads that run through this psalm. Entwined threads of what David the psalmist is struggling with, what he's expecting from God, and how he is approaching God. I think life is like that for all of us, isn't it? Rarely are we presented with one issue at a time or one struggle at a time. Very often they are connected if not by cause, then at least in how they impact us in terms of our body, mind, and soul. So to help see the elements in this psalm, we're going to consider three questions. And for each question, we're going to try to tease out those entwined threads so that we can better appreciate and benefit from it once we put them all back together. So we're going to consider under three questions, what should we bring to God? What should we expect from God? And how should we wait for God? What should we bring to God? What should we expect from God? And how should we wait for God? And under each of those questions, we're going to kind of tease out four threads to help us examine this together. And for those of you who like to take notes, that's great. Um, but I want to encourage you this morning, for something like this, a message like this, listen as well for what resonates for you. We don't all share these struggles all at the same time and right now. There may be one or two that resonate more for you, and I'd rather you heard what God wants to say through his word regarding those than you got a full set of notes. Um, I'm happy to give you a copy of everything I've written afterwards if you really want it. So let's start with the first question. What should we bring to God? Well, the first thing we see in this passage is the need to bring to him that we are lost and in need for direction. Look at verses 4 and 5, and I should say you should you keep that passage in front of you because we're going to look around at a number of different verses. But right now, look at verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. Perhaps you are most keenly aware as we continue to face unprecedented circumstances with COVID, and the regular changing guidance and directives. 
what are we supposed to do? What does wisdom look like regarding my personal health, regarding the health of my loved ones? What is the right thing to do about my work situation, whether I'm still employed and needing to adjust to new working arrangements, whether I'm now out of work and I'm looking for new work in perhaps a completely different field, whether to come to church or whether I should stay at home, and what should our service look like? That's a question our elders are wrestling with. What does school, what's that going to look like? And how does that affect my decisions for this coming year? We, are, I think, are all in common to some degree of feeling lost and in need of direction in our present circumstances. But we don't need to pretend that struggles with needing direction only existed post-COVID. All of those things and many more are regular questions that we face. Questions regarding career, family, health, relationships, finances, countless others. Psalm 25 tells us that we can channel these struggles about feeling lost and in need of direction to God. The second thread of struggle we see in here that we can bring to God is the, the attack from enemies from around us. Look at verse 2. Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. And again in verse 19. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Now you may not think of people around you as enemies as such. But I think we all know what it means to have people oppose us in some form or another. Maybe it's just something as simple as the person who cut you up in market basket parking lot. Or maybe it's a long-lasting, difficult relationship at work of a colleague who's persistently undermining you and has done for the last 10 or dozen years. Maybe it's opposition for speaking up for Christian truth and values in matters of race or ethnicity or of challenging either side of the political spectrum when either policy or character conflicts with God and his ways. The psalmist does not hesitate to bring this opposition before God and encourages us to do the same. We also see that we can bring this thirst, third thread, this third strand to God of loneliness. In verse 16, the psalmist says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. So often with opposition, either directed to me personally or impersonally, just by virtue of the group or groups that I identify with, the coupled with opposition comes this deep sense of being alone. And even though others may be physically close around me, if they stand against me or my beliefs, we feel that distance in our souls, don't we? We can feel isolated, very quickly forming categories of us and them. Maybe just me and them. Or maybe, just in the, again in this climate of COVID, many are physically alone and isolated. And it does not take long under those circumstances for loneliness to be a constant and unwelcome companion from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed at night. Again, Psalm 25 invites us to pour out that loneliness to God. 
And then the fourth thread we see throughout this psalm is the struggle with sin and guilt. Verse 7 says, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. Verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. The psalmist does not hide either past or present sin or his sense of guilt over that sin from God. And regardless of whether you came to Christ as an adult, as I did, or grew up in a Christian home, and have walked with him as long as you can remember, most of us, I think, can look back at our youth and have regret for things that we did, or said, or neglected to do, that did not meet the standard that God sets by his character or his ways. And sadly, our fight against sin is not confined to our past, to our younger days, although by God's grace we should see progress from year to year. The reality is that as we draw nearer and walk closer with Jesus, the more is exposed within us that does not meet God's standard, what the Bible calls sin. And sometimes that sense of sin, perhaps because of our sense of its magnitude, or perhaps because of how persistent that sin has lingered and plagued us without appreciable progress, that sin and that guilt can weigh heavily on our souls. And yet God's word encourages us to see that there is no end in our lifetime to being able to bring that burden of sin and guilt before God. And whether it's fresh from this morning or whether decades old, Psalm 25 shows that God wants us to pour out to him our struggle with sin before him. If you wouldn't call yourself a Christian this morning, but you're just curious, you're examining, then I am so glad that you are here joining us this morning, either here or maybe online listening to this message. And perhaps the impression that you have had of Christianity is that the Christian faith is for those who have it all together. Those who have nice and well-behaved, well-organized lives. And so if that's true of Christianity, that puts you outside. Because that doesn't define your life. Well, I hope that you see in this psalm that that is not true of the psalmist. And it is not true of any of us here this morning. So whether you're desperate for direction or whether you're frightened and alone because of opposition, or whether you're weighed down with moral failure, I hope you hear God's word addressing you this morning, inviting you not to hide these things that you carry in your heart, but to lay them out before him. Now, Psalm 25 doesn't give us an exhaustive list of all the struggles that we can bring to God. There are other psalms of lament, as I mentioned, that cover other types of struggles, Struggles with physical affliction. Struggles with just a great sense of abandonment or distance from God. And other things as well. But the intent of the Psalms of Lament are to show us that God wants his children to come to him with our struggles. Whatever they may be, however messy, however entwined altogether they may be. So that in general we can echo the words of verse 17 and say, The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Now, it's one thing 
to be invited to pour out our souls and our struggle to God. It's another thing to know what God promises to do in response. Is God just a listening ear? Or is he willing to help us in these struggles? And if he is willing, is he able to help us with them? Well, that leads us to our second question. What should we expect from God? And again, we want to unravel those same four threads that we see woven through this psalm. So regarding the need for direction, we can expect from God teaching and guidance. Look at verses 8 and 9. They read, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. And verse 12, Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way that he should choose. When we bring our need for guidance and direction to God, he promises to teach and to guide. Now, unfortunately, this is not the sermon to go into all the detail on how God teaches and guides. But to suffice to say that God has given us his word, which is enough that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work according to 2 Timothy 3.16. And he has given Christians his spirit, who guides us into all truth, as we read in Matthew, sorry, John 16, verse 13. That is to say that we can be confident that when we come to God, pouring out our needs to him for guidance, we can hear him speak to us. He instructs us and teaches us with his word, So we must couple our prayer with reading his word. And we will be encouraged, we can be encouraged, he's not left us to our own intellect and abilities, although those are from God and he uses them. But we don't rely solely on our own ability to interpret and understand God's word, but rather the Holy Spirit is with us and in us to guide us in God's truth. Certainly God can and does use other means to speak to us through prophetic ministry, for example. But the normal means God has given us to receive his instruction and that we need to look to is through his written word. Now, clearly, Scripture does not address directly how to reopen schools under COVID-19. Nor does it address a myriad of other very specific needs for guidance that we might legitimately bring to God in need of direction. But scripture and Psalm 25 tells us that God is more inclined to direct us through informing us and shaping us to cause us to be aligned spiritually with his ways and his moral uprightness, with his paths of righteousness so that we might When we feel lost and in need of direction and look to him for guidance, God's way and the way that we discern to be the right and the best way increasingly come into alignment. We can expect the teaching and guidance of our souls when we bring our needs to God and he guides us as the way we truly need it. Regarding our struggles from enemies and opposition, we can expect deliverance. In verse 3, we read again, Indeed, 
none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. The psalmist declares his confidence to trust in God over fearing his enemies and that he knows God will safely deliver him. The Apostle Paul had a very similar confidence to declare, if God is for us, who can be against us? In Romans 8, 31. Such confidence for Paul and for the psalmist is available to us and comes from knowing that just like Paul and David, the deliverance they sought and received does not necessarily mean that enemies will disappear or that they will suddenly change their ways, although God can make both of those things happen. But their confidence and ours comes from knowing that their enemies could not overcome God's hand upon them. And that in the final reckoning, their enemies had no hope for victory because God is on their side. God will rescue his children from shame. And we may not see that until the courts of eternal judgment for all to see, but God will advocate for you and he will deliver you. Thirdly, in regard to loneliness, we can expect God's presence. In verse, 19, sorry, verse 14, we read, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Now, in the ESV version, which I'm reading from, there's a little footnote next to friendship, and it says, secret counsel. If you have another translation, you might see a translation that's more like that, talking about secret counsel of the Lord for those who fear him. Either way, the concept is the same. It's this idea of the person who lays their holiness before God will find that he takes them into his confidence. The king of the universe ushers us into his throne room to hear our complaint and our struggle. And he doesn't issue direction from afar. Rather, he welcomes us to the seat beside him. He leans over and lets us be privy, not just to good counsel, not just to good promises, but to his counsel, to his promises. Jesus said, Something very similar in John chapter 15, verse 15. He said, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. The lonely have the confidence to expect God's presence when we come to him. And lastly, we see that for sin and guilt, when we bring those struggles to God, we can expect mercy and love. Verse 6 and 7, we read, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. When we bring our struggles before God, whether one or a jumble of many, and whether that includes guilt and a burden over sin or not, at some point we should expect to hear the voice of our conscience blend with the voice of the evil one to whisper, God's not going to listen to you. 
not after what you've done. Do you really expect God is going to help you with that sin in your life or in your past? I imagine that we have all experienced that temptation at some point or other. And the response that we typically face when confronted with that voice is to either give up coming to God altogether or to try to make up for our sin and our moral failure in some way to win back God's affection. And Psalm 25 speaks a loud and wonderful truth to drown out and correct the error and the wickedness of that temptation. Look at verse 8 with me. It says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. Brothers and sisters, that is fantastic news for all of us. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. Psalm 25 reminds us that God chooses to relate to us, to sinners, not on the basis of who we are, but on the basis of who He is. That does not make sin irrelevant to our relationship to God, but it means that sin is not an impediment. Sin is not a permanent barrier to our relationship with God. God chooses to show mercy and steadfast love, and that is not man's wishful thinking. That is God's word right here to you and I this morning. And that is the confidence that we can have that ha that is how God chooses to relate to us when we come to Him carrying the burden of sin. We can pour out our soul and our struggles to God because of His steadfast love and His goodness. And it occurs to me that we have a glimpse right now of the magnitude of God's steadfast love and goodness on display under these COVID conditions. Because for me, I only need one child to ask me, are we there yet, to find my patience tested. With God, I am sure that not just one of his children is asking, but many, many, many of his children around the world are repeatedly crying out day by day, likely hour after hour, are we there yet? Uh, and not once does God roll his eyes. Nor once does he mutter under his breath. But he patiently responds with his counsel. With his deliverance. With his presence. And with his mercy. And with his love. But there is another important thread woven through this psalm of struggle that it is important that we recognize and acknowledge. And it is the thread of waiting. We see it in verses 3 and 5 and in verse 21, captured by this statement that the psalmist makes, that for you I wait all the day long. Now if you are like me, your waiting for God is like how young children wait for things from their parents. And in my house, that means that you might get asked the same question every few minutes. Or it may mean going to the other parent if they don't like the answer they get from the first one. But if we truly value the counsel 
the care and the comfort that God promises to his children, then we will wait to receive them according to God's timescale and not to our own. And it's not that God simply enjoys keeping us in suspense, but in his wisdom, not only does he know what we need, he also knows when we need it. And so that brings us to the third question that we need to consider from this psalm is how then, how should we wait for God? I don't think we do well generally with waiting in the best of times and our culture certainly reinforces impatience by promising everything quicker from fast food to internet speeds, from banking to online shopping. And I'm sure that if we were sick and we went to the doctor that we would be happy, regardless of what our illness or injury was, that if she prescribed to us some pill that delivered an instant cure, we would, with an immediate fix, we would be very satisfied with that. But medicine and our bodies don't work that way. And typically, healing involves some form of waiting. There's usually two different types, though, if you think about it. There's either a passive waiting when the doctor says, take these pills and do nothing but rest for two weeks. But there's also an active waiting as well, where we participate in the process, where the doctor says, you need to do these exercises three times a day for the next two weeks. Either way, whether it's an active or a passive form of waiting, we understand that healing typically occurs gradually through that waiting period. And in Psalm 25, we see the same combination of active and passive waiting for God, for his response to our pouring out of our souls and our struggle to him. So again, just to keep the theme, we're going to see four threads of how God instructs us through this psalm to wait for him. Firstly, we see in verses 9 and 12 that we should wait with humility and with fear. In verse 9, he says, He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. And then in verse 12, Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will, he will instruct in the way that he should choose. Humility before God submits to hear, to receive, and to follow God's way. It says to God, you know best, and your way is best. I will choose no other way. And the fear of God puts the consequences of not following him and his ways above any gain that might be had from following another path that God says is off limits. And the reason I tie humility with fear is because of James 4, 6, which says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The fear of God's opposition is to lead us to shun pride. And at the same time, the desire for God's grace is to lead us to embrace a humble spirit in submission to God and in submission to God's timing. The second thing we see is we also wait with confession. Look at verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And verse 18. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. 
We've already seen that we can pour out our struggles and our sin before God. To wait for God with confession means that we recognize that sin damages our relationship with God and creates interference between us. Yes, we can and we should bring our sin and our guilt to God, but it's not simply to offload it or to get it off our chest like some sort of therapeutic experience. The way to bring sin and guilt before God is with confession and with repentance. Taking responsibility for our sin and sin's consequences, saying sorry with sincerity, desiring to turn away from that sin and trusting in God's mercy and steadfast love to grant us pardon, forgiveness and power to overcome sin through the atonement of his son, Jesus Christ. And we'll come back to that more shortly. These verses don't mean, though, that every time we come to God to pour out our souls, we have to confess the same catalogue of old sins that we go through each and every time, just in case either God didn't hear us or didn't accept us or we didn't do it correctly the first time. Rather, what this means is that we should never, ever lose sight of the fact that we are forgiven sinners. That we are undeserving of God's help apart from his mercy and his love. And that we have no right to expect God to work to our timeline. So we wait patiently for his. The third thing we see about waiting for God is that we wait with obedience. Look at verse 10. It says, All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. And then again at the end in verse 21, May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Even if you're seeking God's direction, and a very specific path is unclear to you, he has clearly given us the way of godliness in his word. And we can wait for God while still walking out the way of holiness before him. Now clearly this cannot mean that God only guides and preserves the perfect, the ones who are perfectly obedient. We've just looked at how God extends forgiveness to the sinner. But it does mean that forgiveness is not an excuse for ongoing disobedience. God desires his children to enjoy blessing that carries on from generation to generation. Look at verse 13. It says, His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. But God has made clear that these blessings, his love and faithfulness, are found in the context of his ways. And so we must be obedient to walk in those ways, to enjoy his blessings for ourselves. And this also means that when God's ways don't seem popular to the world around us, or the ways of our foes who oppose us seem to be more productive in the short term, even though they oppose God and his ways, it means that fear and humility before God mean we don't abandon his ways to take up the ways of the wicked. But we continue to submit ourselves to God's ways in obedience and wait for him. The final thread we see here about waiting is that we wait with faith. And actually we see that in the very opening words of our psalm. The psalmist says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. 
Let me not be put to shame. We wait for God with faith, just as the psalmist did, who wasn't trusting in who he was or what he had done to deserve God's counsel, God's care and God's comfort, but who trusted in who God was, in God's steadfast love and his unchanging goodness and mercy. The psalmist had God's word revealed to him at that time, and we have that too, but we also have the fullness of God's word revealed to us in and through his son, Jesus Christ. And we have the full revelation of his gospel on which we base our hope to pour out our souls and our struggles to God, to trust that he hears us, that he wants good for us, and that we can wait on him in faith. We can do that, brothers and sisters, because we know that there was one who poured out his soul and his struggles in the form of another psalm of lament, and yet was not heard by his father in order that we could be. Both Gospels of Matthew and Mark records Jesus' words as he hung on the cross, citing these words from the opening of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who had every reason to expect his father's counsel, his father's care, his father's comfort, was denied those blessings. Choosing instead to bear the sin and the guilt of man and to endure the full measure of God's wrath against those things so that we could escape them. And Jesus' resurrection to new life declares loudly that his mission was accomplished, that God wants there to be no doubt that for those who trust Jesus, that he has paid their penalty for sin, who turn from their sin and seek to live out the new life available to us in Jesus, that God wants there to be no doubt that we can pour out our sin and our struggles, our soul to him, and that because of his steadfast love and goodness, he hears us in his Son, Jesus Christ. As we journey on God's path through this life, and we face trials and struggles of many kinds, the Psalms of Lament and Psalm 25 help us to pour out our struggles to God. Even as we carry in our souls the knowledge that one day there will be no more struggle. There will be no more feeling of lost, being lost, of being opposed, of being lonely or guilty. And on that day, we will cry out, are we there yet? And God will answer, yes. Yes, my child, you are. Let's pray together.